Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. I hope everyone is staying safe during this time. On this episode, we have an amazing interview with Dr. M.K. Erdman and Dr. Meg Whitmarsh-Brown. Dr. Erdman and Dr. Whitmarsh-Brown were residents at USC when I was a med student and were so supportive and amazing mentors to have. They are now chief residents at USC and have matched into their respective fellowships. I was very excited to assemble the squad and I had an absolute blast speaking with them. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. M.K. Erdman and Dr. Meg Whitmarsh-Brown. You guys, I'm so excited for this right now. Dr. Meg Whitmarsh-Brown, Dr. M.K. Erdman, I'm so excited to welcome you to the She Can Fix It podcast. This has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to be doing this with you guys. Thank you so much for having us. I'm so excited to be here, too. Yeah, huge honor. Definitely. This has been a secret, secret dream since you launched the podcast, so (laughs) thank you for having us. Of course. So I'll start off with some softball questions, just getting ourselves into this. So in your own words, can you describe your background, hometown, college, med school, residency, and where you both have matched? Meg, let's start with you. So I am from Vienna, Virginia. So Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. Um, but I've been out here in L.A. since college. I went to USC. I'm a, a Trojan lifer. I went to USC for undergrad med school and now residency. Um, but I will be going to UT Austin for fellowship for adult reconstruction, uh, <laughs> adult reconstructive surgery and um, uh, value-based healthcare delivery. So it's kind of a joint fellowship in total joints and then health policy. Nice. Very cool. MK. So I am originally from Pennsylvania, another Northeastern girl. I went to college, Lafayette College, which is right around my hometown. Um, Grew up in Allentown. Lafayette's in Easton, which is like 20 minutes away. Uh, Medical school, I moved to the South uh, against, you know, my greatest fears and (laughs) went to University of South Florida for medical school um, out here at USC for residency. And I'll be going to Harborview for trauma fellowship next year. Nice, nice. So why did you guys choose the specialty that you are going into? Um, yeah, so I thought there was no way I was going to do joints. Um, I kind of bought into the whole, why would you only ever want to do two surgeries for the rest of your life um, spiel that you get? And I thought I wanted to do hand or spine or maybe trauma, which is one of the big reasons why I liked USC, um, because we're very big in trauma and hand especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did joints as my first rotation as a second year resident, which is kind of your first real surgical rotation since our intern year is kind of not very surgically oriented a lot of the year. And mm-hmm. I just fell in love with it. I really loved the um, physics behind it. I liked the theory and I really loved the surgeries. They're big open cases. You're not making tiny little portals or doing, you know, microsurgery, which is cool. But I really liked that when you do a total knee, you kind of have the whole knee out in front of you. It's great anatomy. And, um, you know, the total hip is one of the two most, uh, successful surgical inventions of the 20th century. Clinic is really great. You have motivated patients who come in and they know what they want and they are motivated to get better. And you really make a huge difference in people's day-to-day life with this really high impact, very successful procedure. And nothing else really ever topped it after that. 
Mm. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. MK. Um, <clears throat> so I chose trauma pretty early that I just, I love, love the environment of being in the inpatient setting. I've been used to just being a part of a team. I played a lot of sports growing up. So trauma is very team-based that between uh, within the orthopedic team and then across specialties too. It's really important that you're kind of approaching the goal from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I like the fact that you learn principles of trauma treatment, but there's no textbook way to do anything. It's the right, the right treatment for the patient based on their fracture, based on their resources. And you have to really look at the whole picture and be kind of creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I liked that there was not just one way to get to the end goal. Yeah, nice. And I think there's a huge potential for for improvement in trauma care, mm-hmm. um, because it's just it's really hard to do good high quality research in trauma patients. So I think it's a a field that is open for a lot of improvement. Why is it hard to do research? Uh, yeah, I mean you can't. It's really difficult to plan stuff in advance when it's a trauma setting. That yeah. when it comes to elective cases, you can you can really pre-select things that. Um, set of randomized trials much more cleanly, where trauma, it's just very difficult to do that. You run into issues with consent. Um, you know, it, injuries aren't all the same. You have soft tissue injuries that might not really fit in what you're trying to do from a bony perspective. So it's just more challenging. And follow-up, obviously, is kind of something we definitely deal with at county, but I'm sure it's right. pretty germane to the trauma population. <laughs> nice, nice. What are you guys excited about for your fellowships? MK, I'll start with you. Um, I'm very fortunate for where I'm going. It's a lot of people think of it as like the Mecca of trauma. I am already starting off with imposter syndrome for sure. <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit terrified, but there's totally just some huge things in trauma. I know. Dr. And, Lisa Tatesman is, uh, I had such a good time talking to her. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm just so excited to see the, the some of these giants of trauma and see how they work and what they do. Yeah. Nice. How about you, Meg? I'm really excited. Um, kind of what really jumped out for me when I interviewed at UT Austin, they're a newer program. They just opened their, I mean, from top to bottom, they're a new medical center, a new med school within the last five years and a new fellowship. Um, but what really spoke to me about their program was this focused on value-based healthcare delivery. They have sort of, they took essentially their city's county hospital system and completely rebuilt it from from the ground up and Mm. um, created this integrated care model. Um, So basically when we have patients who come in to us at the county with arthritis, um, they will wait on a line for many, many, many years probably to see a primary care doctor even at first to get into the county system and then they'll get referred to joints clinic at some point where they'll wait for another number of months to get seen by a joint surgeon. And then a lot of times they have to be optimized before surgery, which can take years with limited resources. In Austin, they kind of had the same issues. So um, Dr. Kevin Bozik, who's one of the um, main surgeons who I'll be working with, came in and was kind of given um, a lot of room to sort of rebuild. He's been really big in the health policy mm-hmm. um, area for a long time. And they said, okay, why don't you put some of your ideas into action? And so they've created this system where anybody who comes in, say with knee pain, comes into this integrated health care unit where, you know, that could be 
primary care, that could be sports, that could be, you know, a DO, that could be a surgeon, a joint surgeon who needs to see you. So they kind of get you down the line. So by the time they get to the, the surgeon, you've seen primary care, you've been hooked up with weight loss if you need to, with a nutritionist, with a um, weight psychologist, with all of these other resources to kind mm. of optimize the patient in a really holistic approach so that by the time you get to surgery, you have a better chance of having good outcomes, um, a lower chance of having some of the more severe complications. And they were able to do all of that and increase their throughput and efficiency. You know, a lot of the things that we've heard growing up in the county system here has always been, oh yeah, it'd be great, you know, if everybody could have all the resources, but that's just not possible in an under-resourced community. It's not possible in a county community. And they sort of demonstrated as a good case study that you can actually integrate all of these things, hmm. make your patients actually healthier and increase the efficiency of your surgery center. And so that was really, when I heard that, you know, I went to med school here and now five years of residency, seeing what happens to county patients and how they kind of struggle through the system, getting to work, you know, getting to learn the surgical skills with Dr. Bozik, but also see how that system was built and hopefully take that away to wherever I end up was a huge um, plus for me. So that's what I'm excited about for that. Oh, a I had no idea. winded answer to your no, question. No, I had, I literally had no idea. That's so special. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. All right, guys, now we're getting to the good stuff. Um, something that I absolutely love and appreciate about both of you was that you were so supportive and amazing um, when I was a medical student going through my rotations and all those sorts of things. And I think it speaks to the idea of women supporting women in surgery. And so my first question to you guys is, do you think that there is enough women supporting women in orthopedics? I mean, I feel like that's a little, like, was there ever going to be enough? Like there's, <laughs> we can always have more. <laughs> yes. Um, I think for me, having that sort of network of women supporting women has been really critical and helpful um, going through residency and especially kind of in the latter stages, trying to figure out where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something I feel like without that, I don't know that I would have sort of landed up where I, where I have. True. I, um, well, first of all, to go back to supporting you, yeah. the two of us are, are not easy super, cells. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, you know, We're not we no don't necessarily <laughs> like jump on the bandwagon of everyone. Uh, so you were a rock star that like, supporting yeah. you was a no brainer. Yeah. Well done. Thank uh, you. I, I mean, I, actually, if anything, you supported us, I think. A hundred percent. This point, yes. <laughs> like, 1, like not, not, not even in like, uh, you know, overly saccharine facetious way. Um, yeah, you helped so, us carry multiple projects across the finish line, and thank actually, you guys. Yeah. Um, as far as enough enough support for women, I it's hard to comment <clears throat> from like a, a timeline standpoint because we haven't really been in orthopedics that long. But just from the beginning of our residency to now, I think it's gotten better, and I'm, it seems like it's gotten much better over decades when you talk right. to people who've been around longer. Uh, I think one of the things we run into is definitely a factor of the numbers game and yeah. you when you're a female in orthopedics you are in this little group that gets lumped together very easily so mm -hmm. the senior residents are leaders for the junior residents and that's kind of a small group and then if you have 
uh, if you have a junior, a female junior resident who's struggling, the senior female residents are asked to talk to them. So it's all kind of within this very small network once you're breaking it down to an individual program and from class to class. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, it, it makes it tough because I feel like you're always bearing the burden of the entire gender. Yeah. And that's something that I just don't think that the, the males and non-minorities in our specialty understand or, or really can appreciate on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis that you're, you're representing the gender. Yeah. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with that. And it also, I mean, to MK's point, women in orthopedics, just like any minority group in orthopedics are not a monolith. People have very different personalities. They have very different skill sets, strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, she's, it, it's true. You, you know, fair or unfair um, for what it is. I mean, that, that, saying of like you have to be twice as good to be ha- taken half as seriously i think is right. super true and it also because it it often feels i think like we are being judged as a group and the weakest member of the group it's mm-hmm. like you are responsible for that person as well re- regardless of any other you know extenuating circumstance yeah and yeah. it's also hard too that um when you're you're supposed to be supportive and maybe you don't really want to like take on that women in ortho role Mm -hmm. so strongly as a, as a trainee that it's a, you know, it's something I worry about getting pigeonholed that, Oh, you know, she's a raging feminist. So I, a little bit sometimes will back away from it or just Mm -hmm. be a little reluctant to jump on my soapbox so easily. Yes. Um, So when you're, um, when you're asked to kind of shepherd the juniors, it's like, well, yeah, because you talk to one of the guys about about maybe talking to them about their their organization or their communication or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So it's I think that's also a challenge. Yeah, I think I like feel the same. I feel the same as MK in that it is you kind of are. I think often sort of split into being like, well, am I going to jump into this role as the feminist in orthopedics, or am I going to try and swim with the current and not? yes bump into too many rocks along the way I kind of jumped in the opposite direction I think sometimes as MK and probably have opened my mouth louder than I intended to on several different occasions um I think it's just hard it's however everyone's got to sort of figure out for themselves how they want to navigate that and it is helpful having more women because you get to you get to be more of a full person the more people there you know what I mean like the more women there are the more opportunity you have to not have to be the end-all be-all for like the woman in orthopedics role right so yeah I, you, you develop more of a gradient it's not so binary uh, I good, agree. Bad, or I, you know, I, loud quiet yeah no I totally I think it's interesting where it's, it's almost as though you have like two options right? right it's either you can be that one who actually speaks up and actually says hey I think that this is an issue or what have you versus you have the other group that's going to be like we're going to just follow the crowd. We're going to do our, put our head down, do great patient care. And that's what we're going to do. And those are kind of the two groups that are created. And I think like Meg and MK, you guys are so right in that it's because you don't have the numbers, you are only almost allowed to have those two groups and you're not allowed to have people who are in between or the fact that women can actually just do what they want to do or be who they want to be. But no, it's kind of like, here are your two options. 
Right. A hundred percent. And it's been, um, I don't know, MK and I have kind of talked about this, but it's been a little bit gratifying to see now that there are more, when we came into the program, there were a number of, there are three out of 10 of the women in our class initially, sorry, three out of 10 of the residents in our class initially were women, um, Mm -hmm. which the biggest proportion of the classes that were there ahead of us at that time. Um, Now it's nice because some of, there seem to be more junior women. They seem like they have a bigger community where they feel more comfortable expressing Mm -hmm. those differences and expressing their needs and concerns if they do arise. And I think that's really nice. I think that is a function of having more people around and more kind of talk through things. And, you know, it's important to have senior women supporting junior women, but it's also important to have women around you at the same level who are supporting each other. And I think that, that it's really nice to see that they have that now too. True. True. What do you guys think needs to be done in order to increase the movement of women supporting women in orthopedics? I think uh, the way I think of it, there's big picture things and small picture things. Um, the big picture ones are ones that people talk about of having women in leadership positions. And that's not something that changes overnight. It's gotten better with having Christy Weber being the president of the academy and having some of the subspecialty groups having presidents, uh, mm-hmm. having female, females in the chairperson position. That, that's going to slowly evolve, I think, over time. Right. Uh, I think institutions, it'd be nice if they made that a priority that would kind of accelerate the process. Mm-hmm. But then on the small picture side, it, as much as it has changed, um, it's still a boys club that mm-hmm. there's just still the, the very like male driven environment. And I'm guilty of some of the, the wording too, that, you know, oh, that the sports guys typically do this or the joints guys do this. And yeah. Um, so that's one of those small picture things that can change immediately of just the being a a medical student who's maybe considering orthopedics and hearing that kind of phrasing over and over i think is just going to deter you even on a subconscious level of and feeds into that imposter syndrome of i don't belong i'm not one of the guys mm-hmm. um and our male code residents are great and super supportive and i've never right. really had any issues with the with our program uh, specifically in my class but the uh, I think that's just a cultural thing, and again, I think it's something that will shift with the numbers. That once you start normalizing the fact that there can be female arthroscopists, it's not the sports guys. That's mm-hmm. kind of a lazy way to do it. Yeah, and we yeah. we're we're better than that, and we can be better. Yeah, awesome. And that is like in the residency level, and just how you talk to each other, all the way up to and including importantly professional talks at different levels. Um, I mean, I even, even just the emails that you receive, I am a member of AUKUS, which is, has even fewer women members than general, like it has such a small number of female members to begin with. Um, But I recently was asked to uh, write a recommendation for a member who is applying a resident member who's a woman and the email was addressed to me a female surgeon and a female member of AUKUS as can you please um, tell us how you've worked with him in the past and why he would be a good oh, no. you know, member candidate it was like so my uh. first response was well she's a woman uh, to begin <laughs> with but let me 
now address the rest of your questions. And I mean, it's not like it was done maliciously. It's right. just that's the the boilerplate letter that they send out. And it's those little things that are just, you know, as soon as you read them, even if you're a pretty low-key person, I feel like it just, yeah. you're on alert yeah. at that point and yeah. can just be triggering. Um, the other thing is I would say is one thing that, I don't know, people feel a little bit differently about and it can be maybe a little bit challenging, but I think it's one thing for women to be supporting women, which is wonderful and amazing. And we have such mm-hmm. a community within orthopedics, even if it's not just within, you know, joints or trauma, there's a larger women in, in orthopedics community that I think is very supportive and very helpful. Um, but ultimately I do think a lot of the responsibility at some point, there have to be men who support women mm-hmm. and not just men who support women, but men who call out other men. Because when we call out what we see or when we try and call in people to, you know, improve how they use language or improve how they think about these things, it can be really easy to dismiss that as over emotional or, you know, overreaching women when it's just coming from women. I mm-hmm. think. One of yeah, the more frustrating. Don't, don't be so sensitive. Yeah, right, exactly. hundred percent. Like, uh, you're making it not fun for us anymore. Um, and like we had a conversation recently amongst the program about what is professional and not professional conversation, you know, mm-hmm. styles to have if you're coming and giving a talk somewhere and, you know, should there be standards, should there be professionalism standards for the language that you use or the slides that you give and so that you don't offend women, so you don't offend people of color, so you don't offend other minorities. And, you know, some people's feedback was like, we're we're in attending, shouldn't we all expect that you can respect everyone equally? And, you know, if I were in attending getting that feedback, I would be pissed. Like, I'm not going to send you my slides ahead of time to pre-read. Like, this is supposed to be a professional environment. This is supposed to also be sort of a fraternity, for lack of a better word, but, you know, a society of close people who can all respect each other. Right. And like, that's just not fun for us. That's not collegial. And I think, you know, my counterpoint to that is, okay, but think about the other people who've never felt really welcome into that fraternity or that collegiality you're right I think there still has to be a mindset shift amongst the men and the you know non-minority members and Mm -hmm. us as well as I mean we're three white women but you know as for non-minority members of orthopedics that we have to do better to be cognizant and aware of how we are speaking and treating the minority members of the program and minority members of and you know bringing them up as well because it's not enough for you know for women there's only six percent of us at large for Mm -hmm. african-american women it's less than two percent yeah so it's not enough that you know two percent of orthopedics is saying let me in and you have to listen to me and treat me fairly everyone else the other 98 percent of people need to be doing that as well yeah or at least a bigger chunk otherwise we're never gonna get there no i think that's so true i think it's like you are allowed to have more than one mentor, you know what I mean? And you're allowed to have those mentors. Cause I think what's great about, you know, at least my program is that there are so many amazing like male attending surgeons who are so supportive such that, especially when you're like operating in that moment and you're just like, 
well, I'm, I'm really into fishing at this. And you're allowed to like joke about it with the attending. And I'm just like, you know, I'm doing this very poorly. Why am I doing that? And they're, they're able to like joke about it and be like, yeah, so this is why. And you're able to have that like in the moment support that yet you also have your like group of core female surgeons such that when you have that moment of, you know, sexism in the sense that you're the double standards in terms of like, there was a recent article that talked about how um, women are written up or thought to be um, in conflict situations. They're written up more often and they're thought to be um, just not as nice or whatever. Whereas the male surgeons never had that. Um, and so I think like in those moments where it's like that sexism events happen, you're able to go to your group and be like, so this happened and you're able to just talk about it. So I think it's nice where you have kind of multiple mentors and it's everybody supporting everyone for the betterment of orthopedic surgeons, no matter what you look like, who you are or anything. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I know a few women in orthoplasty who have been wonderful and I've reached out to and they've been very supportive. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, if I didn't have mentors who were men within joints, I would not be able to go right. there. You know what I mean? Like right. it, you got to be able to work with and, and learn from people Everybody. all over the spectrum. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I do think that's also helpful when, when those male mentors are the ones who jump in and say, actually, you know, I had a general surgeon once tell me that I didn't have the big boy pants to make decisions about a patient. And my, <laughs> you know, male program director nipped that and like found out very quickly because my male chief emailed him and the male trauma attending who were there were like, she is not to be treated that way. My male program director dealt with the other department and said, she's not to be treated that way. And we expect this to be dealt with immediately. Right. Dealt with right. immediately. But you kind of, it is really important in those moments, you know, where you're experiencing those moments of, you know, sexism or blatant misogyny or whatever to have mm -hmm. the people who are in power to also stand up and have your back and not right. again not just to be the hysterical woman saying no <laughs> yeah exactly awesome well i would like to transition and allow us to humble brag for a little bit in that the three of us wrote an article along with dr anna miller um, of washu um, that was published in CORE, um, and it's entitled, Despite Growing Number of Women Surgeons, Authorship Gender Disparity in Orthopedic Literature Persists Over 30 Years. And so, Meg, um, as lead author, I was hoping you can kind of talk to us about what that article was about, as well as the findings of our work. Um, absolutely. Well, so this article came about uh, when MK and I were interns and Alana was still our third year medical student. Um, <laughs> and we were sitting on my couch around Christmas, kind of asking these questions. What, what does it take to get more women in leadership? How do we get more women into orthopedics in general? Um, there was an article that had been recently published that one of the barriers for women med students considering orthopedics was that they don't have mentors. This exact issue is that they mm -hmm. don't see women in leadership roles. It's hard to have mentors. It's hard to kind of, you know, the whole, you can't be what you can't see situation. And so we were like, well, how do you get women into those roles? One easy way to look at, um, you know, a finite aspect of how people, men and women get 
advanced in their careers in academic medicine is by publications. And we could look at publication rate and preponderance of female authors over the past 30 years to show us a data point of are women just not being promoted because they're not publishing. And so, you know, we know that publications are important in a lot of academic roles. Um, right. So what we did was we looked at 30 years of publications across orthopedic literature, and that included uh, general orthopedics and then the subspecialties as well to see if there was a change in the past 30 years in how, what percentage of women were publishing. Um, and we looked at the first author and the senior author role specifically um, because we thought they kind of represent different things. The senior author role is traditionally the most senior scientists or the most senior surgeons involved in the study. Mm -hmm. um, and that to us would recommend, would sort of recognize the more senior women in orthopedics who'd been in their career the longest and had higher you know, positions as attendings or as associate professors or whoever. Whereas primary authors could be anybody from a med student to a junior resident, a senior resident earlier on in your career. Um, and that kind of might track more with the number of women in practice, whereas the senior author we thought would track with the kind of more percentage of women in higher leadership positions. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that over 30 years and basically what we saw was first authorship did increase, you know, along kind of the same trajectory as overall practice, but the senior author position is essentially unchanged since 19. 87 over the 30 years that we studied that there are have been almost no growth in how many women are publishing in that most senior scientist position that most senior surgeon position and it's less than two percent which is oh, uh, deeply upsetting i would say <laughs> um to be fair there's only six percent the academy says there's about six percent of practicing orthopedic surgeons mm -hmm. are women um but you know one of the things we wanted to look at was this this idea that everyone says it's just, you know, women are in leadership positions because they just haven't been in practice for long enough and it'll trickle down and the pipeline will eventually bring you up to the top and a rising tide rises all ships and whatever. But, you know, we all kind of get as we continue in our career in orthopedics and medicine and science and business mm -hmm. that even when more women are graduating med school than men, even when more women, you know, 17% of orthopedic residents are women. Um, they're still not making their way up to the top. And um, to just say that there's fewer women leaders because there's fewer women in general, like we don't have 6% women in, in program directors or in chairman positions. We don't have 6% of women publishing in senior author positions. We don't have 6% of AUKUS and Academy and all the other you know mm -hmm. panelists are women. We have 2%. So there's something else that's in the way, I think. Yeah. of why we're not getting to those spots. Yeah. I had completely forgotten about that that time you're in the living room. I what that I remember now that conversation. I also remember the amount of like bone decorations that were literally <laughs> throughout like MK's living room. I was so impressed. I'm like, wow, I need to step it up. Oh my word. So what do you guys think is the significance of the article in terms of the what needs to be done in order to make changes? Um, the, uh, just looking at it metaphorically, it's like Meg was talking about, it's, there's more women, but they're not really getting into those elite spots. So it's kind of right. like you bought tickets to the concert, but you don't have the backstage pass. Mm -hmm. um, and that 
there's a few things, a few factors that we need to look into further to see where that barrier, where we're hitting that barrier. Is it lack of interest? Are women not really interested in some of those scientific positions? And they're not as interested in research and publications, which hard to hard to imagine there's that stark of a difference that that's the explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, access to it, I think is a big one that you, when you're a resident, you get pulled into projects just by kind of word of mouth, building relationships, talking to people. And those casual relationships are much easier to build when you have more similarities with people. So mm-hmm. at least specific to gender, I think that's one issue that mm-hmm. you don't, you don't just kind of, you know, hang out and talk to people and, and bond as easily all the time when it's from a different gender, which that goes back to the numbers problem that you have mm-hmm. more, more men kind of steering the ship. Um, and then one of the, the third possibility is the, maybe women are interested, maybe they're getting involved, maybe they're writing papers, but they're not getting accepted at the publication level. Mm-hmm. Hard to judge that one. I don't know, you know, between the different journals and what their editorial boards do, but that's, that's at least something that can't be ruled out. Yeah. And we did do some of some background research into those, those issues too. Um, in orthopedics, it's not as well studied, but in general, women who graduate from medical school and, and residencies are more likely to say that they are interested in academic position than are men. So in terms of the, are women just not as interested? I think there is some data that we cite in the, in the paper that says that that's not necessarily true, that women actually are more interested in going into academics. I don't, you know, that may be because academics in some ways offers you more flexibility. Um, I don't think it's necessarily because they're, to MK's point, the cleft is not that big between the number of women who want to be in academics versus the number of men who want to be in academics. Um, right. In regards to the publications and how their editorial processes work, I was really surprised when we were finishing up the discussion when I looked at the editorial uh, criteria for the papers, for the journals that we included. Um, m- the majority of which did not say that they had to have a double blind review, which is always something we talk about in science and in medicine, that everything should be blinded because of innate bias. Um, mm-hmm. And we know that there are studies in business and other areas that have said if you have a name that sounds more, quote, ethnic, or if you have a name that uh, specifies gender, that certain times those papers are more likely to be graded as of lower quality than of people who have names that sound more Caucasian and more male. Um, again, that's not in orthopedic literature, but in science at large, but I think that can be extrapolated. We also quoted papers that found that reviewers who are reviewing topics that are typically assessed to be uh, male coded. So things like computer engine, like computers, engineering, kind of quote, hard science topics like that are more likely to grade a paper as scientifically less rigorous if it has been written by a female, if the topic is coded to one of those male topics. And that is specifically impacts us in orthopedics, which is a field that is very much considered to be male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it can be extrapolated that someone looking at a paper that's been written by a female author in an area like orthopedics, specifically in biomechanics or, in, you know, implant design, which is huge for, for arthroplasty, particularly mm-hmm. in other fields, 
um, that paper might be seen as less scientifically rigorous than if it was the same paper published by a man. Mm. Um, so those kinds of things are potentially very problematic. And a lot of the, pa the journals that we included do not have do not specify that their review processes are totally blinded. And that's either at the reviewer level or at the editor, you know, at the editor level. Hmm. Um, so CORE, for example, and Nature both published in the past two years that they were changing their editorial guidelines to ensure that they were completely blinded to avoid biases like this. Um, but that has not necessarily been adopted universally. And I think that would be a huge step towards yes. potentially leveling the playing field. Yeah. I think it's it's almost as though my for listeners who are listening to this, uh, my recommendations would be one: put your head down and bang out the work. You know what I mean? And I think it's you know something where if you if that's something that you want, then that's it, research is one of the ways, and it's a powerful way in order to get yourself you know up from assistant to associate to full uh, professor. And I think that. Um, what I also would recommend is kind of that as along that same lines is women supporting women. If you see other women who are lead author, senior author, like advertise market, like retweet it or post it on Instagram or like share it with friends. And I think that that's kind of the two ways that we, at least we can try to in our own little way, try to help this. A hundred percent. I mean, I think especially the last point that you were just making of, um, social media has been huge. Yes. Since we've been in residency, the takeoff of how many individual surgeons and surgical programs that I think we all know and follow um, has been huge in terms of increasing your voice and your platform and, right. and your reach for your work. Right. There's actually a, a randomized control trial. Um, I cited this in my, in my grand rounds about podcasting. Um, there's a randomized control trial done with uh, thoracic surgery literature. And there's this like Twitter group that will basically tweet articles. And so they randomize articles one-to-one -to, -one to being tweeted versus not tweeted. And they looked at the um, citations, the metric scores at one year. And in this prospective randomized control trial, they found that those articles that had been tweeted and publicized on social media had higher Lmetric scores. Um, they were more oftenly cited and they basically had more robust scientific, quote unquote, um, just ratings in comparison to the articles that weren't being tweeted. So it's, right. which is, you know, it's great to know how to market our articles, but it's also scary in the sense that are the articles that are being talked about simply the ones that are just being publicized more? 100%. I mean, that's like the terrifying thing about research. I, I know. I mean, this is part of why I thought I was going to do an MD PhD before I started med school and I did focused research. For, yeah, it was, first thought. of all, insane thought. I also thought I was going to be a neurosurgeon <laughs> with an MD PhD. So, like, those uh, were like, neurosurgeon. Not, not well, great. Ugh. Right. So putting that aside, though, it's one of the things that was a turnoff was you realize that, I mean, science, you can make numbers say anything. And I think one of the things that we always kind of get frustrated about in our monthly journal clubs is some of the papers that get published are just trash. Right. And it has a lot more to do with who you know and who's on your paper, on your senior mm -hmm. author, you know. So kind of using publications as a metric for who should and should not get promoted, I think, is already an issue that needs to be you know, 
more thoroughly discussed at all levels um but it's it's part of the game you know and I feel like that's it go you know all of this is tied into like how do you play the game it's like yes the same conversation that MK that was saying about you know do you want to be the thorn in everyone's side or do you want to just like swim downstream and see what happens it's figuring out how to navigate medicine and academic medicine and promotions is difficult and it's even more so if you're not I think the ruling class as it were yeah speaking of that I would love to transition to just in general the lack of gender diversity in orthopedics and I've had many many attendings on this podcast um, but not as many resident physicians so I would love to hear your thoughts um why do you guys think women do not go into orthopedics? There's a multitude of reasons. Um, <laughs> there, I think, one, it's just traditionally not thought of as something that's welcoming to females. Uh, right. Partly from an environmental standpoint, like I said before, it's a boys club. Mm-hmm. And then partly from a physical standpoint, there's the idea that you physically can't do the work. Right. Um, I know I, I heard that feedback as a, I was a college student and I was talking to my, my pre-health advisor and, and he's like, well, you're a big girl. You can probably do orthopedics. No. Yes. <laughs> um, interesting. Thanks. I feel both <laughs> offended and complimented. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that's, that's just not true. But right. That's not really, there for sure are things that do require physical strength but it doesn't necessarily have to be by the attending physician there's there's hands around who can if it's something that's pulling traction then there's There's plenty of eager medical students (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, we have yes we have tools that's uh something that the cavemen and cave women figured out that tools make your job better and easier uh and we have thus applied said tools to orthopedics um so the the physical thing it kind of blows my mind because we also have um many not large men who are in orthopedics i know so oh my gosh you know it's that's just shouldn't be a barrier yeah. um but i i think exposure to it the kind of feedback that you get as a as someone who's early in medical school in medical school and who is showing some interest mm-hmm. i i knew very early on that i wanted to do ortho and when i was a first and second year medical student i told people that the thing I heard more than anything was, well, what's your backup plan? Not how, what can we do to get you to plan A? It was, well, you know, let's just say that doesn't work out. It's like, well, let's not say that. (laughs) Um, So I think that the response that you give when people are expressing interest, maybe for the first time, I think it's, oh, what do you like about orthopedics? What have you done so far? What have you seen? not shutting them down right away even if it's a a low-key shutdown of what's plan b yeah yeah i support that yeah i think that's super fair um i think one of the things that initially turned me off to it when i was coming to med school was i heard you know it's just a jock thing like (laughs) you're too smart to go into or like don't you know, from actually a lot of the really smart women who were my friends in college or my friends from home who were also in med school who were like, I mean, you know, we kind of, people love to hate on ortho. Um, so true. 
in general. I mean, go on Twitter, on Med Twitter, anybody who's not an orthopedist, who, like someone's going to hate on us in a loving way, I would like to think, but also in a not so loving way sometimes. Um, I know that was one of the things that I was just like, oh, well, I don't want to just be a jock bro. Like I want to use my brain. I want to, you know, if I'm learning all this medicine, I want to use it. Um, I don't know why we have that stereotype so much still because we have to have some of the highest board scores to even qualify essentially. So true. So true. Um, we manage really complex patients. I mean, to MK's point, polytrauma patients who are super sick, um, that we play a big role in managing their care, you Mm -hmm. know, oncology patients, a lot of our patients are elderly, um, and have a lot of comorbidities, uh, and it just, I don't, I don't think that standard needs to be, or that, uh, that stereotype needs to be applied anymore. It, It doesn't really fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that can be a turnoff for sure that you're just like, you know, uh, as strong as, what is it? As smart as an ox and twice as strong. <laughs> that was what everybody always says about us. Well, you know, I don't ever want to manage diabetes. So I'm hundred percent. Right. Yeah. 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 That's true. <laughs> but... Medicine co-management. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Do you guys think it's getting better? Like I, I think it is. I mean, I think that the fact that this podcast was even able to be created is honestly a testament to the fact that, you know, as my chair, Dr. Lisa Latanza said, like, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, we kind of need to realize that there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of ground that has been covered and just pioneered by folks who have come before us. But I do think that there's just been this acceleration in the past few years I don't do you guys think it's the same or what do you think it's so hard because I think MK and I are both Alana are you as well we're both first generation doctors we don't I know a lot of the guys who are in our program and who I went to med school with who went into ortho you know their dads and their granddads or whoever were all orthopedists so I don't have as much of a view kind of into the past experience um I think one thing that I think is probably better now than it was before is I um, having more women in leadership nationally, even if they're not in our program, um, is super helpful because mm-hmm. I have found, again, not having any female arthroplasty surgeons in our immediate area in our program or in the programs close by to us, I cold called a number, cold emailed a number of different attendings, a lot of which was to MK's credit for encouraging me over and over and over to just (laughs) Just have the balls to do it. Uh, And she was totally right. Um, And I've never regretted doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. Like big names in arthroplasty who immediately called me back or emailed me back and offered to just jump on the phone when they were on their way home from work or getting out of a case or between lectures or whatever, Mm -hmm. who have been wonderfully helpful and supportive. Um, You know, I have a group of wonderful women attendings in Los Angeles who have been super supportive and I go to there now like my brain trust we we're all doing the same kind of nutrition and workout plan together which is sort of how we all got together but now they're like my brain trust for you know when I told them I was coming on you know your podcast and 
how should I prepare for that? Or how should I think about job interviews? Or, you know, if I've had issues with stuff, you know, how do I approach talking to someone about Mm -hmm. something someone said that I thought was inappropriate or whatever? Right. Um, And is soy okay or not? I mean, these are big questions. Right. Yeah. And is Peloton truly worth it or is it just a fad? (laughs) Um, But, you know, having that in that way, I think it's gotten better because I, I don't know. I, you know, I think in the past there's been a stereotype that women in leadership didn't want to help other women up behind them, you know, because it's so hard for them and they're not going to make it easier for you. But I don't, think that that is the case anymore so mm-hmm. for sure in in that regard I think it's gotten better true one of the uh look we we definitely get upset about the negatives of being in the minority in terms of gender within orthopedics but mm-hmm. there are positives and the one of the very cool positives to me is that the nursing staff the support staff they are thrilled to see females in orthopedics yeah. that sure. they they are, they celebrate us, they help us, they support us. They, they have been like some of the biggest cheerleaders throughout my time as a resident. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, that speaks a lot because some of these people have been, you know, nurses on an orthopedic floor for 20, 30 years and in ortho clinic. And they, they, it's a lot of females in the nursing field. So it's, cool for them to see us around and to see an ally on the surgeon side. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's a, that's a really great role to have that mm-hmm. we're kind of bridging the gap that there's a lot of, a lot of push for medicine to be more team-based and not to be so, you know, the surgeon dictates everything. And, you know, we have timeouts and we have the checklist and make sure that everyone has a say in the care of a patient for safety mm-hmm. purposes. And I think having it feeling like there's more accessibility to the surgeon when it's an all-female nursing staff and maybe it's not a all-male surgeon staff anymore that that opens um opens the door for a lot more communication a hundred percent agree amazing i also think it's cool when you have patients who you know i've had patients in joints clinic when i go in to talk to them first they're women for me for my specialty more than half of the patients are women. I think mm-hmm. it's something like 60, 60, 65%. And none of their surgeons historically have been women. And I've had, you know, women in their 60s and 70s like, uh, this is my concern. I don't really feel comfortable talking to the guys. So it's just nice that you came in first so I can talk to you about it. And um, I think that's a big deal. I think that's true for a lot of underrepresented people in medicine mm-hmm. and in orthopedics specifically. And I think that that shouldn't be downplayed. True. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. working in a county system when you, the majority of your doctors do not speak the same language as the patients who you're treating. Having someone on staff who does, who can speak to them in their native language can be a huge, you know, a big deal to breaking down those barriers. I think that's something we need to be striving for more in orthopedics. I think we're very lucky in our program that our chairman has made that a big focus that he wants our department to reflect more of our, our patients and our community. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's something I think the overall, we still can do better at. True. Yeah. One of, uh, one of my favorite stories about implicit bias, I was rounding on a patient the, the patient was a male and his wife was at bedside. I forget what it was, if it was a joints patient or something. 
and he uh, he said, "Oh, you know, you've been like such a good nurse or something," and the the wife wound up and like backhanded him across the chest and goes, "That's your surgeon." <laughs> oh my word! It uh, th- that was just a very cool moment. But yeah. I, I don't I don't know. That's awesome. Oh yeah, you need God. the wins like that. Yeah, you need, you need it. And you're just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, because of all the times like you want to respond that way and you want to say that, having his wife do it in front of you was just so cathartic. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. amazing. So I know that we've talked a lot about kind of big topics, but I would love to talk about the future and what your guys' goals and aspirations on are just looking ahead. So MK, I'll start with you. Um, so fellowship next year Mm -hmm. and beyond that, definitely academics. I don't Mm -hmm. know where, what kind of shape my practice is going to look like, but I, I love teaching residents and I love teaching about surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would like to have a a big role in education and developing curriculum, be running a program at some point, maybe, uh, as far as like things that I would like to see improve in orthopedics is the multidisciplinary work that we, we kind of work in a silo a little bit that we develop our plans for patients. And then we check in with general surgery and plastics at these sporadic undefined intervals. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's definitely big room for improvement in multidisciplinary care Mm -hmm. that getting, uh, making sure you have the right OR table when a patient gets, uh, taken to the operating room emergently. So they have an X-lab with general surgery. If there's a radiolucent table, then we can also X-fix the femur. But that can't happen if you don't even talk to the service in advance. Right. So that's something like sharing the sandbox and doing what's best for the patient uh, is something that I, I'm very passionate about. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. How about you, Meg? Uh, it's a great question and one that has been very much on my mind because all of a sudden you wind up five years at the end of residency and you have to finally apply for a job for the first time in your adult life at 30 something years old. Um, (laughs) A little terrifying. Uh, So I am really excited about my fellowship. I am really excited about joints. I love joints clinic. I love joints patients, but I am really excited about the opportunity to also try and stretch some muscles in the area of health policy. I come from a family that's always been very involved in government and politics. Um, and I would really like to expand more into the health policy world. Um, I have been at the county now, it'll, by the time I graduate, it'll be nine years of training at LA County, yeah. which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you're ready to move on, but at the same time, it's hard not to have very strong opinions about healthcare and and the way healthcare is delivered and who's left out of that. And um, I think one of the amazing things about orthopedics is the impact that we have on people's lives. It's, and it's so tangible and it's so immediate in a lot of cases, like for both trauma and joints, Mm -hmm. um, people who are wrecked in car accidents on the freeway, people who have not been able to walk or work because they've had terrible arthritis for years and they go back to being fully functional adults. They feel like they can participate in their lives. They can continue to be productive. Um, 
they just don't have pain. And I, that is something that should be available to everyone, just like all healthcare. But, you know, we're elective, joints is elective, but it, it does have such a big impact on people's lives. And it's so obvious. And I think that that is a very good example of why healthcare needs to be available and why healthcare needs to be integrated. And that is what makes me partially so passionate about joints. And I want to be able to get more active in that field of policy. I don't, I think, you know, academic practice will probably give me the flexibility to have some time to work on that as well. So I think Mm -hmm. I'm trying to aim towards academic somewhere, but in the long run, that's where I would like to end up being. Uh, But I just don't know exactly how to get there. (laughs) Oh, that's great. You Hopefully guys. next year will help. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's awesome. It better. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would love to transition to our final segment. That is the final five, which are the five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. So my first question to you guys is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Meg, I'll start with you since I might think this might be a little bit of an easier question for you. Because <laughs> hey, we only do two. We only do oh, two procedures. We do revisions too. That's true. That's revisions true. And left and right. Left. Yeah, oh, that's wow. true. We're up to eight. <laughs> uh, no, I, my favorite things still to do are PAOs and surgical hip dislocations um, for like, uh, chondroplasties and femoral acetabuloplasties, which we do at CHLA. So hip preservation procedures, which I know is, um, Dr. Goldstein sacrilege. Yeah. With Dr. Goldstein. Exactly. Right. Which is sacrilege to my future joints people, but I Mm -hmm. have been, that's on my radar is potentially doing a second fellowship. I've sort of delayed that for the moment just because I've been training for a long time, but Mm -hmm. it's still something that I'm interested in. I love those. Awesome. How about you, MK? I uh, I love to nail any long bone, but the retrograde femoral nail, it just there's something that is so elegant about it. Uh, I think the especially when you're doing it with a junior, getting the mm-hmm. starting point is way less painful than doing a trochanter entry or piriformis entry. True. But you're, they're not like just fishing around in soft tissue, stabbing, you know, guide wire, various mm-hmm. places that just a very direct approach to the knee, start position, instrumentation, it's, it's so direct. And the reduction to me is very fun with the, with the retrograde nail. That, that is like classics bread and butter orthopedics. Usually mm-hmm. you're kind of doing it in a polytrauma patient and you have other cases to do. So that's just one step of what you're doing. Um, but I, there's just something about that case that I love every retrograde nail. Oh my gosh. You guys are so like typical of your specialties and it's like perfect. Well, thank you very much. You're I most welcome. I just love welcome. how excited MK gets about fixing fractures. I know. Oh, yeah. I love bones, but I also love when they're in many pieces. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, so if you were to have a Ground Rounds presentations, what would your topic be? Mm. Do, can we cheat and pick what we've already talked? I mean, <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Do what you've already talked about. Yes, and I, please tell the whole audience that you're cheating. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, I love talking about the gender stuff, but I do, I would prefer to spend more time talking about the research interests I actually have. So <laughs> um, I really love talking about the 
boundary between hip preservation and early hip replacement. Um, there's a pop patient population of very young people who have had pediatric hip disease that has lingered into their young adult or very late pediatric life. Um, and like I mentioned, I do enjoy hip preservation, but I also think the total hip is the best surgical invention of the 20th century and understanding when to pull that trigger, I think is really interesting. And I gave a talk on that last year. I'll be giving another talk on it at the end of this year. So that's my favorite thing to talk to large groups of people about. Awesome. <laughs> MK? Um, the hard science one is avoiding malrotation in femoral shaft fractures. That mm. there is a whole bevy of options that is that are often forgotten. Uh, that's if you even remember to check rotation, which is something that I don't think everyone does. But the soft science one that I'm interested in is the multidisciplinary work that whether or not we are on the same page as our colleagues in general surgery and plastics and mm -hmm. we're uh, not just sitting from afar saying, oh, why did they do that? I would have done it differently. That we should be in the same room talking about these patients, uh, whether it's intervention or post-intervention in the form of an M&M. &M. Uh, mm -hmm. I just don't think there's enough crosstalk when what we do initially with the management of a patient can change their outcome long-term. Yeah. Okay, would you say you want to be in the room where it happens? Ooh. Wow, that was an impressive Broadway reference. I have goosebumps. Thank you very much. Good. I'm glad. Oh my God, you guys are great. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? MK, I'll start with you. Uh, an all-female trauma team. It was this year, the beginning of the year. that It was a female second-year resident, a female PA student, a female intern. Uh, we see a patient with pretty significant bilower, bilateral lower extremity fractures. I think it was autoverse pedestrian or MBC. And we took him to the OR in the middle of the night and two teams of all females, a female attending on call and debride the wounds, X fix the legs. There's a female scrub tech, a female circulator. It was just a whole lot of girl power for some pretty bad injuries. And I'm uh, happy to say that the post X fix X rays look well aligned, and I think we did well for the patient. Oh, Meg. Mm. Mm. That's such a good one. Mine was so much less deep than that. Uh, <laughs> um, I just really enjoy. I think it's. Now getting to be, to MK's point, when you're at the end and you can teach juniors and it kind of, it helps you see, sometimes it feels in residency that time has not moved at all and that you are not progressing and that you perhaps have no tangible skills. That's whole imposter syndrome and fatigue kind of builds up. But I just finished my, my trauma rotation as a trauma chief. I go back for a little bit of a victory lap later on, but um, feeling like I can actually run a room by myself, run a trauma, actually operate, like feeling like you're ready and people respect you. And I had a superstar junior uh, woman, by the way, who was just crushing it, knocking everything, like getting to work with her and seeing her knock it out of the park and see our attendings respect us and our work by the end was really gratifying with all the frustration that can come with being a resident to know that True. at least you've kind of made it through is very nice. Oh, that's awesome. 
I do my have second to... favorite memory yes. uh, was when a patient in restraints chewed through his own wound back to me. <laughs> yes. Very That's different. Awesome. Very, very different, but very memorable. Oh my God. Along those... all... Yeah, go ahead, Meg. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of... Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. I, I think one of my sto- favorite stories of the three of us was that I remember, Meg, or you were in a bath, like, this is a weird story to tell, but you were in the bathroom and then you were struggling to open a toilet paper. Do you remember this? Yes. It was just... I... The, was so just... I, you told us to start. Wait, hold on. To be fair, we were post-call at a restaurant and we had maybe had one or two margaritas post-call. <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this, but I went to that bathroom and I still saw that and it bucket. It was like hamster, hamster bed. <laughs> hamster bed. Like, <laughs> <tear> it open. <laughs> so whenever I'm struggling to open a toilet paper roll, I always think of you guys. <laughs> I'm so proud of that. So honored. <laughs> so honored. Oh, All right. No. Two more. Number four, you guys. <laughs> What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Um, margaritas and tacos at the place <laughs> where we went. I still I go to that place. It's still my favorite. No, um, I have two basset hounds, which are, if you're not familiar to the listeners, they're comically <laughs> disproportioned creatures that were not designed by God or evolution. Uh, and I just really love them. Um, they're 13 and nine. So on top of being comically disproportioned, they're elderly and infirm, but, um, they're great. Uh, my, uh, husband and I like to, we just have been trying to enjoy California as much as we can before we're moving. Um, Mm -hmm. so like we've been going up to Tahoe and Mammoth and trying, uh, anything that was basically open post COVID to try and get outside and hike and take the dogs and get a little space from LA has been really great. Nice. How about you, MK? Um, pre-residency, I used to golf a lot. I've been like dreaming of going back. To I remember about that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Speaking of wanting to teach and golf, MK still refuses to teach me to play golf That's because true. she's afraid she would be too frustrated. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. Um, women support women okay, yeah <laughs> all right you know what we can do it let's do it i will i will commit to it at this moment yes to um, all the listeners but as a good segue i like to drink whiskey so <laughs> if uh, i have a couple shots of whiskey then it'll be much easier to che- teach you golf i think or hit me over the head with the club whichever comes yeah, first or, yeah scotch bourbon any of those nice mm-hmm. Uh, I like to cook. I like to grill. I love to grill. Mm. I just live downtown in an 11th story loft. So I, uh, it's much harder to grill in that setting. Usually frowned upon, I think. Yeah. But LA's great. I, there's like no, no um, paucity of things to do. Awesome. My final question to you both is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? MK, I'll start with you. Uh, So I referenced it earlier that when I was a medical student, I felt like I didn't really have the, um, I didn't really have the mentorship that I would have hoped for. 
-hmm. that when I said I wanted to go into orthopedics, the, the initial response was, oh, it's really competitive. You have to do well on boards. It was mm -hmm. a lot of somewhat negative, somewhat realistic of you know, just to make sure that people making sure that I knew what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. But I think take that with a grain of salt to a certain extent, have a plan A. It's okay to have a plan B, but have a plan A. But right. if you want to do orthopedics, do that. If you're in residency and you think you want to do hand, but you might also be interested in spine, plan for something. Just pick one of them, go for it. When you're an intern, start working on research early, start building networks early. Even if those networks don't pan out to be the field that you're going into, that network builds into another network. Um, so have try to do some like really critical thinking about where you see yourself and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Plan for that, act on it, and don't don't be paralyzed with indecision. Ooh, that was, that was great. great advice. Yes, that was fantastic. Ooh. Meg, how about you? Um, I don't have any advice for orthopedic surgeons because I don't feel like I can offer that yet. Uh, but similarly to the juniors or to the med students kind of thinking of coming in, um, I think one is prepare yourself adequately, have a little bit of a tough skin, know that things are changing and changing for the better. I mean, specifically for women or people of color or other underrepresented minorities, um, mm -hmm. you may feel like it's an uphill battle sometimes, but if you keep looking, you will find your tribe of people in orthopedics. I think that's why we all ended up picking this in the first place is because it's where we felt the happiest in med school. And even when it's, when residency is hard, I still w would not have picked a different subspecialty over orthopedics. Um, I would also say be flexible. Like I said, I did not come into residency thinking that I was going to end up going into joints or moving to Texas or married or any right. of that. So, right. um, you know, med school, college, med school, residency, fellowship can feel like a ladder and you're just going for the next rung. And we're very good at following the path that's laid before us. But I think letting yourself have the opportunity to actually listen to your gut. And it's something that I've been trying to get better at and to really understand what it is that you really want. Mm -hmm. Like MK said, that critical thinking of where do you actually see yourself? Not where is the next step supposed to be, but where do you want it to be? Mm -hmm. What do you actually want to do? Um, give yourself the space to figure that out and the grace to, to do something that you want, even if it's not what you thought or what your dad or your mom or whoever thought you should do. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you're going to spend 80% of your life doing this job and you need to be happy and balanced so that for yourself and for your patients and for the residents you teach, and, and the other people you work with. Well said. Dr. M.K. Erdman, Dr. Meg Whitmarsh-Brown, thank you guys so much for joining me. I had an absolute blast and I really miss you guys. And so thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. We miss you too. We're so proud of you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. M.K. Erdman and Dr. Meg Whitmarsh-Brown. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. You can follow us on Twitter, 
and Instagram at SheCanFixItPod. I would like to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.